Yeah, I could go home after that. <laughs> I won't, but that was good. Thank you, worship team. That was great. A um, couple things before we get into the text this morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 1, by the way, if you have a Bible with you, maybe a hard copy or an electronic version. If you're new to New Hope, we put the verses up on the screen as well, so that will help you. Um, but before we get into that, you probably have noticed the continual growth at New Hope, more families and more individuals coming to the church, and um, that means making more space as much as possible. I want to encourage you, maybe after this service, to linger for five more minutes or so. If you're a core part of the New Hope, you've been here for a while, New Hope, and you've been here for a while, how about maybe lingering for a little while and getting to know some of these new individuals that are coming in? That'd be a good thing, wouldn't it? Yeah, just, just, just get to know people. You'd have no idea where it could lead to and maybe new relationships for you and make new individuals feel welcome. So let me encourage you to do that. And not lingering too long because obviously you've got meals to get to, but that um, would be great. So in that same vein, though, one of the benefits of being right next door to the bowling alley is we've been able to use the bowling alley parking lot for a while, but the owners of the bowling alley have noted something to us, that as the church is continuing to grow, more and more individuals are parking in front of the bowling alley. And what they've asked us to do is make sure we park either to the east of the bowling alley or to the west, but not right in front because that's for their customers. And they have customers on Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock, but we're taking up their parking spaces. So if you could help out by making sure you focus to the east or the west, that would be great. So I'd love to pray with you before we get into Matthew 1. God's going to push on our hearts. I'm confident of that this morning. So I invite you to join me in prayer, and we'll see what God has to say to us. Pray together. Father, our hearts are really mindful of what is seven days from now, and that the world will pause for a moment to consider what you have done as your people who are present with you today in this place. I would ask that you cause us to be a spark, an igniter, someone who would bring hope to individuals who think what's going to take place seven days from now is just about gifts. I pray, Father, that you would speak to us in such a way that we would be ready to conform our lives to your purposes and the things that you are doing that we sometimes are completely oblivious to. So I come before you right now on behalf of your people asking that you would teach us through your word, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and cause us to see what you are about to show us in a way that perhaps we haven't seen before, perhaps didn't register with us before. It's gonna cause us to respond differently, God, that we would be a force for your kingdom. We pray for that in Jesus' matchless name and all God's people said, Last week, we were reminded of God's eternal purposes as we looked at Luke chapter 1. And part of His eternal purposes, recognizing that we are created in the image of God, that we're imagers of God, but that the fall corrupted us, the first extension of the invitation from God is that we would come back into relationship with Him. It's part of His eternal purposes. But then there's the second component of His invitation. And the second component of his invitation isn't really something I should call an invitation, because it's actually an expectation. 
that have you have realigned yourself with God, you've entered back into the relationship, God has the expectation that then we would conform ourselves and join Him to what He's doing. Now, these realities that I'm discovering, describing to you right now, they become readily apparent as you work through the Christmas story, the biblical events, the way that they're described. You're going to see exactly what I'm talking about. But if you're a person who considers themselves one who reads the Bible or studies the Bible, maybe you've gone to church for a long time in your life, perhaps you're very new to church, but you're still reading the Bible actively, it should not surprise you that the origins of Christmas are not found in the barn of Bethlehem, but rather they're rooted in the throne room of God, in His eternal purposes, precisely because of His eternal purposes. Paul's writing about that in Ephesians chapter 3. Let me remind you of that. Look with me on the screen at what he said. He said, this is in accordance with the eternal purposes which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. God has eternal purposes, and he's always working to carry out those purposes, specifically carrying out the rescue through Jesus. So I would ask you to ask yourself this question right now. Do I believe in a God who intervenes in the affairs of this world? And do I believe that that same God made a plan before the foundations of this world to be personally involved in my life? Do you believe that God made plans to personally be involved in your life? And if you do, you understand the implications for that are absolutely staggering. For one, you need to be reminded that God knows you. He knows you intimately. He knows you by name. You are not unfamiliar to the God of the universe. Hear that again. You are not unfamiliar to the God of the universe. He knows you intimately. In the course of my life, my wife and myself, we've come to know some fairly famous people. No one that you would put on the scale of Elon Musk, but some fairly well-known individuals that we've maintained relationships with. But in Elon Musk, when you think of an individual like that, you have to immediately think, yeah, he's pretty famous, he's known around the world. Well, I did a little research and found out that Elon Musk is actually the most famous person on planet Earth right now. Did you know that? I don't know how they check those kind of things, but apparently he is. From India to the United States, from Russia to South America, Elon Musk is the most famous individual on this planet. Now, if right now on your speed dial on your phone, you had Elon's number and you could text him during this service while you're sitting here today, by the way, if you do that, just tell him I don't really care for his new pickup truck, okay? <laughs> I like SpaceX, that's great. But if you had Elon on your speed dial, or maybe you could text him while you're sitting here this morning, you would feel pretty connected, wouldn't you? You'd feel like you're really dialed in, a sense of self-importance. Let me ask you to step beyond that lightweight and think of the individuals who have gone before you. Aristotle, Noah, Joan of Arc, Queen Victoria, Moses, the Apostle Paul, Augustus Caesar, individuals who have reshaped the destiny of this planet and they've made their imprint on history. 
Think of those individuals, Beethoven, Mozart, Napoleon. Out of the 100 billion plus people who have walked this planet, the God who has created those billions knows you by name. He knows you so well, so intimately, that Jesus even makes a comment about how well that God knows you. Look with me at what Jesus actually said about this in Luke chapter 12. Verse 6, are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Say amen if you agree with that, church. God knows you so well that He knows every hair on your head. You could not number every hair on your head, but God can do that. So vast is the omniscience of God that He is able to execute down to the tiniest detail His plan. He's able to execute everything that He purposes to do for this reason, in order to draw people to Himself who will conform their life to His purposes. Romans 8 speaks to this very issue. I just showed you Ephesians 3. Let me show you what Romans 8 says. Those whom He foreknew, now He's speaking about believers here, people who say they align themselves with Jesus Christ. Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. I'm just going to tell you, many people get sidetracked by Romans 8.29 because they get hung up on the word predestined. They, they think that that's the most important statement that's being made in that verse. That's not the most important component of that. That's not even my reason for bringing it up. Actually, predestination is not the focus of that verse. The outcome is what's significant. What's the outcome? That you would be conformed, that you would become conformed to the image of Jesus. That is what God's expectation is for those imagers who are made in His image, who have restored the relationship through Jesus. The second phase of the invitation is that they would become conformed to that image. This is really consistent with what we spoke of last week because Jesus is the model. He is the perfect imager of God. We are the image of God. We're made in the image of God. But we became flawed through the fall of in, in humankind, through the fall of man. So God expects that image to be restored. So we now, when we're restored, we look to Jesus, the exact representation of God. Now let's examine how all of those pieces fit together in Matthew chapter 1, because what you see in this story is absolutely stunning in the circumstances. It's important to remember what I described to you last week. If you weren't here, I'll catch you up on this. What's going on in the midst of this story is there's something in the Hebrew tradition of marriage that's very important to understand. Mary and Joseph, who are the primary characters in this story, they're just teenagers. They're engaged to be married, but they're in the midst of a 12-month betrothal. Every single Jewish couple experienced the same thing. From the moment that the groom instated his intentions to the father, if the father agreed to it, they entered into a 12-month betrothal period. Now, at the very beginning of the 12 months, the bride and the groom would drink a cup of wine together. They would share the same goblet, and they would drink the wine over the top of the ketubah that had just been signed. It's a legal document that outlines all the responsibilities and all the expectations of the marriage. They would drink the cup of wine, and that was the last time they had contact with each other for 12 months. 
seeing each other at a distance, sometimes in social settings, but the parents always kept the bride and the groom apart during this period of 12 months. There is where we find ourselves as we open up the book of Matthew chapter 1 and we come to verse 16, and it reads this way. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Now, if you don't know this, the Bible traces genealogy in a way that's extraordinary long before Ancestry.com ever came around. It's been doing it a long time and getting the details very, very accurately because tracking lineage was extremely important in the ancient world. But there's something very significant to what you just read there that perhaps you haven't paid attention to before. If you go all the way back to verse 1 in Matthew chapter 1, what you find is the beginning of a listing of the ancestors of Jesus, starting with Abraham, a lineage, if you will, all the way down through the line, down through the centuries, so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so, and it's always father to son, son to father, father to son, keeps on going down the line. What's remarkable is you find that it's all males until you get to Jesus. Every single male individual is listed in the line of Jesus. And then Matthew drops in Mary's name and doesn't list Joseph as the father of Jesus, but he says Joseph is the husband of Mary who gave birth to Jesus. It's extraordinary. In genealogy, you don't find that in the ancient world. So it reveals to you right away that Matthew is communicating something very specifically, that Jesus arrived here outside of the normal means of a typical birth. There is no reference whatsoever ever to an earthly father in the genealogy. Read it again. Look at verse 16. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born. So Jesus is born of Mary, raised by Joseph, who is not his biological father because the the father in this case is the Holy Spirit, according to what Scripture is going to tell you. And then Matthew launches with this information, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. You might remember last week I referred to the word betrothed. It's in your notes this morning, nistuo, and it's talking about a souvenir, like a a ring that's given in the engagement process. Whether it was a necklace or ring or another piece of jewelry, we don't know. But what we do know is they have not yet hit the ceremony stage. They're not close to the honeymoon yet. But Joseph is like every other red-blooded male and has the plans of any other young groom, and every man knows what he's thinking about when he's working in the woodshop every day. And he's not thinking about the invitations for the wedding. And he's not thinking about the color of the bridesmaids' dresses. He's thinking about his wedding night. He's thinking about what's coming for him with his new bride. And he knows the ketubah has been signed. He knows the legal documents have been put in place that outline all the obligations of their marriage, and he finds himself in the midst of the one-year waiting period. And it's during that time that Mary is found to be with child, verse 18. Before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now, you talk about a packed verse. That one is a lot to swallow. We know because of the conditions of the the tradition that Joseph and Mary have had no sexual contact. And yet in verse 18, we're told that she's found to be with child. 
So Joseph became aware. In other words, the pregnancy became obvious. And his attitude going forward makes it really clear that not only that Mary is pregnant, but this is an extremely serious situation. When she's found a pregnant, he logically assumes that she's been unfaithful to him. And here's where we deviate off into Theology 101 for just a little bit. The Bible is extraordinarily clear. It goes out of its way to make it really obvious that Jesus did not have an earthly biological father. Here's another example for you. It comes from Galatians chapter 4. When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. There's no human father in that verse. And there won't be any place throughout the Bible because it's always born of a woman. Now, I understand Jesus had to have one human parent. He had to or He could not have been human. And He had to have divine parentage or He could not have been the Son of the Most High. And for that matter, He could not have died for your sins to take you to heaven one day. So He had to have these two in place. Well, this verse actually tells us who the Father is, who the pater is, Matthew 1 verse 18, by the Holy Spirit. Now obviously, Jesus' arrival on this planet is an enormous mystery. Everybody would like to know, how does that work? Well, the reality is, even if God wanted to be able to tell us, how could He explain it in terms that we could comprehend? The biological function is one thing, but that's not what I get hung up on because I know God could help us understand that. What I get hung up on is how does that work that God and humanity blend together? That is the mystery. We can no more fathom that than we can fathom how God created everything out of nothing, ex nihilo. How did He do that? Well, here's what I understand, somewhat, I'll qualify it. The very fact that the virgin birth is given so little space in the Christmas story proves to me that it is not man-made for this reason, because it is not human nature to shrink something down to such a tiny window when it's being fabricated. Our inclination as humans is to expand on things that we're making up, to make it sound like it's plausible and reasonable, to give every possible detail. The fact that it's given only one sentence here is very telling. Now contrast that. Matthew spent 17 verses listing out the genealogy that gets to Jesus. Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, and he keeps on going down through the generations. You get all that information, but when he comes to the miraculous conception, you get one statement. Born of a virgin. Human fabrication would do its best to attempt to present much more convincing materials, which it does not do. So I do understand this. I understand He's fully God, and because He's fully God, Jesus is fully able to pay the penalty for our sin, which humanity cannot do. And I understand that He's fully human, which means He knows your weakness, you imager of God who have realigned your life with God to put yourself in relationship with Him because of what Jesus did, He is fully aware of your weaknesses. And Scripture says this very clearly in Hebrews 4, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. That's a really comforting verse. Hebrews 4 actually should be something that you put on your mantle 
because Jesus knows you. He knows you intimately. But this imager here, Joseph, he doesn't know any of this yet. He's never read Hebrews 4. He's never read Luke chapter 1. He's never read Matthew chapter 1. This is all new information that he's not had available to him. Now, in his culture, because she is pregnant, he's expected that he will divorce Mary. So we get verse 19, and Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Now, at this point, you naturally want to yell, Joseph, read Luke chapter 1. But Luke chapter 1 doesn't exist, and he doesn't know that information. Today, you are really fortunate to be able to look back over time and put all the pieces together. He can't put the pieces together. He doesn't have the benefit of looking back over time, and he certainly doesn't have the experience. He doesn't have the details that you have. Yet, he is living in a world where he has available to him and has significant exposure to the Word of God. And even a very poor interpretation by Old Testament readers at this period of time would assume that when the Messiah arrives, he's going to arrive in a very unique way, even if they don't know all the pieces, because the clues are spread throughout the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 3, Jeremiah chapter 31. If you put the clues together, you understand there's something extraordinary coming, and it would take a remarkable scholar to be able to assemble all those pieces, and yet some did. Simeon in the temple. Anna assembled the pieces and understood exactly what was going on. But there's no clue necessary when you read Isaiah chapter 7, which was available to everybody living in the first century. Read Isaiah chapter 7 because it is not obscure. Chapter 7 verse 14 says this, in no uncertain terms, behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. We'll come back to that verse in just a few minutes. What do we know about Joseph? Well, like Mary, he's introspective, and he's very strong. This is a person who's not a pushover, but he's adventurous, and he's willing. He's willing to take on challenges and willing to be useful. And the reality is he's somewhere around 19 years of age, maybe 20 at the most, and he looks like in every piece of artwork you see as an old, old man with a long flowing beard. He's the oldest looking 20-year-old you've ever seen. But this guy's been recently apprenticed. He's just coming out of his teen years. He's been apprenticed and he stepped into the construction world. We know that specifically because of Matthew 13. It says this, he came to his hometown, speaking of Jesus, and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is this not the carpenter's son? He's a tecton. That's the word that's used. It's in your notes this morning. You see it on the screen. It's the root of where we get architect, architecton in the United States. Somebody who works with their hands. A tecton is someone who works in the construction industry. So Joseph is a construction worker. And if you worked in construction in the first century, you not only worked with wood, you worked with stone. So you're a stonemason and a woodworker. You do both and you get very good at both of what you do. But we're also told this guy is a righteous man. He's an Old Testament saint living in New Testament times. And his heart is broken because he really, really loves Mary genuinely. And it's evident in his actions, the way that he responds towards her. 
but she's violated the contractual vows as far as he understands. She's pregnant. So he chooses not to publicly humiliate her, which he could do. Instead, he decides to divorce her. So verse 19, being a righteous man, he decides to put her away. Now, strictly speaking, if someone is righteous, they're just. That's a biblical definition for that individual, which means he follows the law of Moses, dots every I, crosses every T, checks every box, makes sure he does exactly what Moses' law commands him to do. So because he's a righteous man, he cannot in good conscience marry Mary. And if he did go through with the marriage, it'd be a tacit admission that he's actually a player in this. So his hands are tied. He knows he has to react in some way because he's careful about observing the law. He can't just wink at this. In his mind, a violation has taken place, so he has to respond. She's no longer a virgin. Therefore, he's unable to consummate the marriage, but he doesn't want to be cruel. And he doesn't want to shame her, but he's been shamed. And so we find Matthew 1 verse 19, he planned to send her away. So his new plan is to keep both his justness in place and his compassion in place. Check where this guy is at right now. He's gone from being a carefree, groomed-to-be, with a business to build to this place where he's facing incredible pressure from his culture and his community expectations around him are everything. At a minimum, they expect him to divorce her, if not have her stoned for actually participating in sex outside of wedlock. And so he's deeply conflicted and yet he's humiliated. Now check this church. In the midst of the turmoil and the tension that he's living with, is God still at work? In the midst of the tension that you deal with in your life, you're an imager who has aligned yourself with God. You've opened yourself up to God's purposes. Even though there's tension that you're living with, things are not going the way you intend for them to go. Is God still at work in your life? Absolutely. Without question. In the midst of the turmoil that Joseph is facing, an extraordinary situation, God is at work even though he doesn't feel it. Now, I know this about men who work with their hands. I know that men who work with their hands tend to be very contemplative. They have lots of time, if you will, on their hands. And so they have a great deal of time to process information. But I also know this about men who work with their hands. They also tend to be extraordinarily determined. Another way to say that is stubborn, and you probably know some like that. So individuals who work with their hands have a lot of time to process information, a lot of time to think. They also tend to be very stubborn, and once they've made up their mind, they can be the most stubborn people on this planet. Now, knowing Joseph is a righteous man, and knowing that he's a contemplative man who takes things inside and processes it, that kind of an individual who's determined, we would say it's reasonable to say that God's going to have to do something extraordinary in his life to get him to begin thinking like God along the lines of God's purposes. Well, God has something extraordinary in mind for him. Verse 20, 
But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the son who has, the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now there's something they never prepared him for in woodshop class. Didn't see that coming. Had no idea this was going to be part of my life. God sends an angel to unfold a great mystery. And Joseph is an imager, just like you and I, a young man who thinks he has everything before him. He happens to make his living in wood, and to that one, God reveals the greatest plan in all of history. Question, do you have to have a seminary degree in order for God to work through you? No, absolutely not. You don't even have to have been mentored well. God's chosen someone who as, is as obscure as they possibly could be, living in like Mary, backwater Israel, in this little town called Nazareth, and God chooses that one to reveal His plan to him. So in verse 20, we read that when he had made up his mind, when he had considered this, he pondered it, he resolved, he's being really stubborn, that's when the angel shows up. Now, I'd love to get into angelology with you this morning and study that, but we get no information on the appearance of this one. All we understand is that this message is very focused. It's concentrated on the message. In one moment, Joseph is going from this place where he has determined divorce is his only option to this place of a new reality. Process this, church. He thinks that the great scandal is that Mary has betrayed him and that he's been shamed. But in reality, the great scandal, if you will, is that God is in the womb of a human being, a woman on earth, and he's come to be shame for us. That's the scandal, that God would do that for us because he loves us that much. But Joseph doesn't know that. His focus is on his world, and he's totally unaware of the bigger truth that's unfolding. So in response, God gives an order to one of his warriors to step through the fabric of time into our world. So this one is dispatched from the throne room of God with a message that's determined from before the foundations of the earth. And he says to that angel, I want you to go deliver the good news. Go give Joseph this relief valve. So in verse 20, the angel shows up and says, Joseph, son of David, which is an extraordinary title, one of great respect, because immediately he's reminding him of his lineage. He's reminding him that he descended from King David, the king of Israel, Joseph, son of David. And Joseph is right in the line of King David, even though he's a carpenter in a shop. It's the exact same greeting that the angel Gabriel gave to Mary when he showed up to talk to Mary and said to her, this one that you're carrying, this holy child, he will inherit the throne of his father David. It's the same title, the same reference. So God has given this order. He's come with this announcement, and the expression is one of great dignity. A woodworker who could be a cop, a nurse, a janitor, it doesn't matter the occupation. God shows up and uses an ordinary individual. Now, Joseph is on high alert 
because he's just heard this title, not just because there's an angel there, but he's heard this title, King of David is your ancestor, you're the son of David, which implies to him immediately there's an opportunity being given to him that is of imperial purposes. There's a kingdom implication here in that statement. And the expression is one of great dignity for a woodworker in which he says to him, this is what God wants you to do. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. There's a Greek word, last one, that I want to really bear down with you on. It's in your notes, paralambano. And notice the definition and the way the association works here, to receive near and associate with oneself. The angel is saying to Joseph, do not be afraid to draw this one into relationship with you and make your association with this one. Paralambano, Mary, bring her into your world. If you carry it out to the full Greek meaning, it means do not shrink away from. Do not shrink away from this hard thing, Joseph, and it's gonna be a hard thing. It's a really hard thing that God is asking him to do, but God is up to something magnificent. Another thing I know about men is men are really good at doing. I are one, so I understand that. We're, we're good doers, and Joseph is being given a doing opportunity here. He's a fixer, just like every other guy. Guys want to fix things. Well, this is the ultimate fixing opportunity that's just been offered to him. And God is speaking his language when he says, take her home, love her, care for her, Feed her and the child, provide for them everything that they need, and protect them, Joseph. That's what's in Paralambano. Bring her into your world. And then the angel drops the same bomb that Mary had heard. Verse 20, for the child who has been conceived is of the Holy Spirit. That's the reason that Joseph is supposed to receive Mary. It's right there in black and white. It is utterly profound, though. How in the world do we put this into words? It's the definitive testimony of the virgin birth. You got somebody in your world who really questions whether or not Jesus is of a virgin, born of a virgin, because it's never happened before and never happened afterwards. So there's lots of people who don't believe that. Well, what we're being told here right in God's Word is this authentication that she is a virgin bearing a child is right from God Himself, and the angel is the messenger of God bringing this announcement. In other words, he's saying, Joseph, God made her pregnant. It's God's activity. God has made her pregnant. She's not been unfaithful. The child has been supernaturally conceived. And what I want you to notice is God's not forcing him to believe this. He's giving him the evidence. He's putting the pieces together for him, but he's not forcing the invitation on him. He's inviting him to join him and be part of what God is doing. But hear this, church. There is a clear expectation from God that he will take on this challenge because he is a righteous man. He's an imager who's put himself in line with God in the way that God thinks. And so there's an expectation from God that he's going to do this. Now, verse 21 tells us there's no need for an ultrasound with this child. Verse 21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And there it is. 
God just told him something that she didn't hear, Mary didn't hear. Mary didn't get to know that he was coming to save his people from their sins. Mary knew that this was a holy child and that she was going to carry him. But now Joseph has just had confirmation, this is the Messiah, an ordinary young man who works with his hands for a living, who lays bricks and pounds nails with no pedigree and no college degree, has been drawn into the greatest mystery of God's eternal purposes. And then he sold this in verse 21, you shall call his name Yeshua. Now, in patriarchal times in the ancient world, moms and dads got to choose the names for their children, just like today. But in this case, Mary and Joseph don't get that privilege. In this instance, it's not their privilege to name him. It's not left to the parents because his destiny is in his name. And the basic meaning of Yeshua is Jehovah will save. Now, there were lots of boys and girls, boys, sorry, not girls, lots of boys named Yeshua at this period of time. And I told you that last week, it was a very common name, like saying John to someone. But every single person who bore the name Yeshua, all of them spoke of the Lord's ability to save because the name means Jehovah will save. But this one himself will be the salvation. And so the angel goes out of his way to say in verse 21, this one, he will save his people from their sins. And that verse right there, church, is the one you should emblazon on your greeting cards for Christmas because that verse orients you. That verse tells you the reason for Christmas. It is not about the tree in your yard or the tree in your house or how big your light display is that's outdoing your neighbors, even though we work really hard at that. It is about Jesus coming to save us from our sins. Now, to Joseph, his people would be the Jews of his nation. That's where his world would be at, what he would be thinking. But the word his people is actually revealed that as the gospel expands, it's talking about all of God's people, everybody who's realigned themselves with God through Jesus. And as the gospel expands around the planet, we come to understand that his people are actually the followers of Messiah, those who belong to Yeshua. And that's why Paul writes what he does in Ephesians 3. I told you I'd circle back to it. Verse 11, this is in accordance with God's eternal purposes, which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus' primary purpose in coming is to deal with sin. It brings glory to God. So we are reminded that God is at work even when my plans are being interrupted. You've had your plans interrupted this last week? They may be interrupted this week coming up. Is God still at work? Absolutely, God is still at work, and He invites you to join Him in what He's doing. Now, you get this final detail, kind of the capstone on the story. It goes like this in verse 22. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which translated means God with us. Now, what you recognize when you read that is that Matthew is giving you some detail. Now, remember who Matthew is. He's a former tax collector who met Jesus. 
Now, Rome only hired tax collectors who were really good at what they do because they wanted as much money as they could get, which means he was a very good mathematician, which means he was very attentive to detail. And that's why you find Matthew in chapter 1, verse 1, starting out with the lineage from Abraham all the way down to Jesus' birth, detail after detail after detail. Well, this author who is specializing in detail has just given the ultimate detail at the end. And he's just given you some commentary. And his commentary is this. He's saying that in the Old Testament, Jesus' birth was announced. It was announced in advance before Jesus arrived because he just clearly identified the birth announcement as saying, this was prophesied in ancient prophecy. And then he quotes Isaiah 7, 14. This is the other one I said I would circle back to. Look at it again. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now, for everyone reading the Bible, for every person, whether they've been in church a week or 50 years, if you open up the Bible to the New Testament and you go to the very first book of the New Testament, to the very first chapter of the New Testament, what you find Matthew announcing so clearly so that there's no mistake and everybody will get it. He says in verse 22, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet that God was gonna come to this planet. It has its roots in God's eternal plan. He purposed to do this from the foundation of the world. And then he holds out these two facts so that you don't forget, he says, a virgin will conceive, a virgin shall be with child, which in itself is absolutely stunning. Because I promise you sitting here this morning, there has never been on planet Earth only one time when a virgin conceived. Of all the billions who have ever lived, one time a virgin conceived, and that in itself is stunning, but that is not the most shocking part of that statement that he just made. While that is stunning, that a virgin could have a child, what's most stunning is when he says, his name shall be called Emmanuel, and then he interprets it for you, because if you don't speak Hebrew, you don't understand what Emmanuel is. And Matthew is writing to the first century Greeks, and Greeks are receiving this, and he tells them, you know what? This is what it means. It means God with us. Emmanuel is God with us. It's absolutely spectacular. And yet we've become so familiar with it and so comfortable with it, we fail to be stunned by the reality of what Matthew has just said here. And so I push down on this last detail so you get what happened. In Jesus' incarnation, in his arrival on this planet, we would have to agree in the most literal way, Jesus is God with us. But think about the way that Matthew said it. If you go back to the Hebrew language, we looked at this in the E2E study, the word tabernacle in Hebrew is mishkan. Mishkan means to dwell or to abide, or if you will, to camp with, 
to set up your place. So when we looked at the book of Exodus and we learned about the tabernacle, we found that they were to build the tabernacle in the wilderness so that God would come and dwell with them and abide with them and camp with them, if you will. Well, that's that concept of mishkan. Now, mishkan is the root for the word shekinah. Shekinah as in the glory of God. In other words, when the tabernacle was set up and God camped among them, the glory of God was present among them. And so you have the Shekinah glory of God among those people, the presence of God's glory. So it is very accurate to say that this child who is about to be born will be the Shekinah of God who will be present among God's people. And that's why John writes what he does in chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God. And you come all the way over to verse 14, and he says, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of, of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's Shekinah. That's what Matthew is talking about in chapter 1 here. The glory of God tabernacles among his people, and his name will be called Emmanuel. Now, as far as we know, no one ever called Jesus Emmanuel to his face because it's not his proper name. I don't think anybody said, hey, Emmanuel, come on in for supper. But that name, it embodies all that he is. He shall be called Emmanuel because he is the Shekinah glory of God, presence of God. So we would say, in Jesus, nothing less than God came right here. And Joseph has the privilege of adapting his life and conforming his purposes to God's purposes in order to carry out God's plan so that he can steward over this little baby who will be the God-man and Joseph owns it. He owns it to the degree that verse 24 finishes this way. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Can you imagine the feelings of shock and amazement and relief in this moment for Joseph? To be overwhelmed with the information is one thing, but the relief of, I can take Mary as my wife with honor now? And he's been given care of God's son, and it is inconceivable that God would trust his son into the home of someone who isn't fully committed to him. And Joseph is that guy, because as soon as he's aware of these situations, he violates all cultural customs and doesn't wait for the 12-month period to go by, but he brings her immediately into his home rather than waiting for the custom to be carried out. And there will be gossip in the community. You can count on it because that's what people do. But Joseph knows God's will for his life. And he owns the responsibility to the degree that he's willing to take a bullet for Mary and for Jesus. You can read about that yourself by looking at the reality that he went to Egypt with them to escape Herod, who was trying to murder the child. Now, here's how we wrap this up. Did you notice the pattern? That's very similar to what we saw last week. God intervenes in the life of an imager, which is followed by the expectation 
that there will be a response. The maturity level of Joseph and Mary is absolutely stunning as you read this. And Joseph's obedience is no less significant than Mary's obedience. Both of them are great examples of what it looks like to respond to God when things are going really hard. In your life, you can measure the maturity level of your walk. You can measure the maturity level of another person's walk with Christ by how they respond to the hard things going on that God brings their way. When we allow God to work through us and adjust our lives to His plan, even when we can't make sense of it and conform our purposes to His purposes, we look like Jesus. That's what Romans 8 is talking about. Look with me again at this. Those whom He foreknew, if you're a believer in Jesus, this is you this morning. Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. To be conformed to the image of Jesus, the perfect imager, the one who has no sin. We are the image of God for sure. Christ followers who have been restored, restored to the relationship with God so that we will begin to look like Jesus. The greatest compliment you can pay to someone this week that you know, who you know is a believer, and they're going through hard things, you want to encourage them? Say to them, I see Jesus in you. I see Jesus in what you just did. I see Jesus in your response. I see Jesus in your actions. You want to encourage somebody? That would be the ultimate encouragement to them. Because Jesus Himself said, if you want to see what God looks like, you look at me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And you, church, know that you are maturing and that you are moving closer to what the original image was intended to be when you pattern your life decisions after Jesus. That sounds like a pretty big issue to pray about. And that's what I'm going to do with you right now. Heavenly Father, as we take on this week, we recognize that seven days from now, people are going to be very focused on getting gifts and totally missing why you came. As your representatives, as your imagers, we would ask that you would use us beginning this moment, an hour from now, a day from now, God, when you bring hard things our way, allow us to respond as you would have us to respond as Jesus would respond. Father, we we desire to be a force for your kingdom and to reflect you to a world that's looking for answers. Represented by this auditorium and people watching online right now, God, I know our individuals who have a lot of contact with other people who are just desperate for answers. Allow us, God, to be Jesus in their life so that they will see how you would respond through us and that we might be able to point them to you. That'd be the greatest thing we could do to honor you, Father. We recognize that. We want to give glory and honor to the name of Jesus, our Savior. And so we ask that you would do that through us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we ask that in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.